Good evening. Welcome. Good to see you. Can you turn this light just a little bit? Thank you very much. Good to see you. Wednesday night again. Boy, these, these weeks just go by quickly, don't they? Just seems like they go by so, so quickly. Uh, tonight, let's open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 34 as we work our way chapter by chapter through this wonderful Old Testament book. It's been a privilege to teach through this book. Uh, along with Leviticus on uh, Sunday night. It's fantastic to study these two books together. A, a foundation in the Old Testament is very, very important for you as a believer uh, because as you study the Old Testament, you'll find the foundations of everything in the new. Everything is, is uh, built upon the old. There's a lot more Old Testament than New Testament, but, but we don't spend enough time reading it and... Uh, we're studying it now. It's been really, really good. You'll remember it was just a couple of weeks ago in chapter 32 that, that the children of Israel had really uh, uh, apostatized in a way. They, they, were, they made a golden calf. Aaron, the high priest, Moses' brother, made this golden image, and they worshiped it. And so Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, and there the people are dancing naked around a calf. And that great sin against God caused Moses then to throw down the tablets of stone because the people had broken God's law. And then we came to chapter 33, where God tells the people last week that he refused to take them into the promised land. He said, these are your people, Moses, you're going to have to do this. And he said, you know, if I if I spend any more time with you, I'm going to kill you. I mean, sometimes we feel that way about our husband or wife, right? But, but God actually says, if I spend too much time with you, I, 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 I'm going to kill you. You're sinners. I'm going to send you uh, the rest of the way to the promised land through the, my servant Moses. And, of course, the people cried out. They thought that was the worst because they had been with God. Remember, God had delivered them miraculously with the ten plagues. God had fed them miraculously in the desert. God had protection with the fire at night and the cloud by day. His presence was with them. And then we've watched as we've gone through Exodus, as God has given specific instructions to Moses on how to build this tabernacle. The picture you see behind me in the screen is just an a illustration or graphic of that. But that tabernacle that was so important, and it represents the dwelling of God, the dwelling place of God. God wanted to be with his people. He's always wanted to dwell with his people, but it's sin that's always separated people. And what does Moses find when he comes down from the mountain? Chapter 33 or 2, the people are dancing around a golden calf. They, they, they're a stiff-necked people, God calls them. And we come to chapter 34. And chapter 34 is very interesting. It's really a foundational chapter. And again, really important for you to understand, Moses is going to go up on the mountain of Sinai again for a second time. And he's going to be up there for 40 days. God is going to reveal himself to Moses. Remember, at the end of chapter 33, uh, Moses says, God, I, I just want to see you face to face. And God says, okay, I'll show you, but you can't see my face. I'll have to protect you in the cleft of the rock and by my hand. I'll, I'll let you see me. And that occurs in this chapter, chapter 34. So the promise in chapter 33 is now going to be realized here in chapter 34, where Moses on Mount Sinai is going to have this encounter with God. And it's going to be so great and so wonderful that when Moses comes down from the mountain the second time, Something's different. He walks into the camp, and the people are afraid. They all jump back in terror. They look, something's wrong. And he's like, what up, you know? And it's Moses, haven't you seen your face? Look at your face. His face is glowing. He's got a Shekinah glow. He's spent so much time with the Lord, in, in a sense, anthropomorphically, that, that God doesn't have a body, but he's described as hands and face and all those things. He doesn't have a body. God never, no one can see God. And so we're, he, he's described as, as his hand or his arm uh, or his eye. He doesn't have eyes, our God. And so Moses is spending time with God, with Yahweh, 
and his face now is a glow. It's, it's blowing people away. In fact, he's got to put a bag over it so the people aren't afraid. But it's this Shekinah glory. I'm going to help you understand that, that is now on Moses, the mediator, the, the representative of the people between God and, and them. It's this, this glow, glow that is reflecting the glory of God. So I've named the study tonight, Reflecting God's Glory. We'll see how that ends up at the end of the chapter here, but it's a fantastic chapter. Let's pray and ask God's blessing as we study together. Father, thank you for the word. I pray, Lord, that you would bless now the reading and the study of your word, that we, your people, would learn really the foundation of, of many things in our faith. Teach us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for the fellowship. Thank you for the sweet brothers and sisters and for those working and serving in the Sunday school and ushering and the worship team. We thank you, Lord, for many people that make this church what it is. May we honor you, Lord, as you come and work in our midst. In Jesus we pray. Amen. We begin here in verse 1. I've kind of broke the chapter up in a few subtitles, as I always do. We begin with the renewing of the covenant in verses 1 through 4. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up the up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me on the top of the mountain and no man shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountains. Let neither flocks nor herds feed even at the bottom of the mountain. So, verse 4, Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then he rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now, the first thing you'll notice is that Moses is alone again. Joshua has been with him. At the last excursion, Joshua actually went with him. It was Joshua and Moses who came down and saw Aaron with the golden calf and all the people. There was a time where God called the elders. Remember the 70 elders back in chapter 30? They half of, or, or The 70 elders came up halfway up the mountain. This time, nobody. Why? Because of the great sin of the people. God doesn't want anyone around. Sin always separates, always. And so this great sin of the nation has separated the people. Moses is the only one that comes to the top of the mountain. Joshua couldn't even come. Animals couldn't graze, verse 3. This renewal of the Mosaic covenant here is going to take place between God and Moses alone here. And by the way, these are the same Ten Commandments. They're not really given to us in their order or by description here, but we, it's the same Ten Commandments. We'll, we'll see at the end of the study, I'll read this section, and you'll kind of get the idea that this is what they are. But this is, God is going to write again on the tablets of stone that were broken by Moses. In verse 1, notice it says that he will write the Ten Commandments. And if you jump all the way down to verse 27... Notice it says there, then the Lord said to Moses, write these words. So we have God writing, but it's Moses that's going to actually write the words too. And God is doing something special here. And the renewing of this covenant is going to be this collaboration between God and man. So these, these laws are, are to get all the way to the people. God is going to use Moses. Moses is the mediator. Moses is a type of Christ. As you study the the types of Christ or typology in the Old Testament, it's Moses. He's a mediator like Jesus is between God and man. It's Moses who is taking these commandments. He has involvement in writing them just as God is writing them as well. So this, this account, this story here, chapter 34, is helping us to understand that God wrote the Ten Commandments, but he used this man, mediator, Moses. So he's going to write these laws through Moses on these tablets that he's instructed Moses to bring up to the top of the mountain. And this is important, again, because it shows the role of Moses as mediator and leader of the people. Now, in verses 5 through 7, we see the fulfillment of God's promise here uh, to Moses. 
that he made back in chapter 33, verse 19, where God, you know, is, is saying that I'm, I'm going to pass before you. So this is the fulfillment of this passing before in the making or renewing of this covenant here. I'm calling this section God revealed to Moses because God is going to reveal himself here in the renewal of the covenant. Now the Lord descended in a cloud and he stood with him there. This is that the anthropomorphic description of God. God doesn't have a body, but he's standing here. See the standing? So the Bible gives us these description of God. His hands not too, his arms not too short to save. His hand spans the universe. His eye is all ever watching. We see those, those different descriptions of physical attributes, but God doesn't have any physical attributes. He's God. He's a spirit. But that's what I mean by that. So God comes, but he's still there. He's, he's there in the presence of Moses. He stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So this cloud, here's this cloud. Remember, I, I started with, with this idea of, of the face of Moses changing, reflecting the glory of God. The Shekinah of glory that we're seeing throughout the Bible in the Old Testament. It's the Shekinah glory of God, and it's seen in a cloud over and over in the Old Testament. Here on Mount Sinai, God comes in a cloud. And again, the cloud covered Mount Sinai in, Moses, in uh, Exodus 19. In the first giving of the law, before the law was given, there was this cloud that descended over the mountain while Moses was up there and the people were down below in the camp and they feared, greatly feared. What's going on there? There was earthquakes and flashes and, and the cloud. So this cloud of Shekinah glory is, is synonymous with the presence of God. The same cloud covered Israel by day back in chapter 13. God protected his people with a cloud. That's his presence. It represents him. The same cloud, interestingly enough, is represented, and we studied Mark chapter 9 and the transfiguration of Jesus. And remember when Jesus revealed his glory, he pulled back his humanity. What was it? His remnant was as bright. It was bright white. They couldn't even look at it. It was that bright. That little painting I showed you last week from Raphael, the famous Italian painter on Sunday morning. It, it showed Jesus kind of hovering, with, it, but he was in this white raiment with this white flaming hair, and it was just all bright, bright, bright. But it's this brightness of God that we see over and over again. Let me just say what Luke, or show you what Luke said in Luke 9 about Jesus' transfiguration. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. Remember, it was Peter, James, and John were there with Jesus, and it was to confirm their belief that Jesus was Messiah. Jesus took him to the Mount Transfiguration. And he changed in front of him. But Luke says there was this cloud here in Luke 9. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Peter, listen to him. Remember, it was Peter. Listen to what I'm, I have to say about my son. So this cloud of Shekinah glory, I want you to get that connection. That's what we're seeing here. Notice in verse 6. And the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, I love this, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, this description of God, this wonderful character attributes of God that, that are being uh, revealed here in this cloud, in this Shekinah glory of God as, as God reveals himself here to Moses. It's, it's one of the more fantastic revelations, descriptions of who God is in our Bibles. This is God speaking directly to Moses, revealing who he is and what he is like. And he begins, notice in verse 6, with his name. It's the Lord, the Lord God. Now, the Hebrew text uses what we uh, have, have described as Yahweh, but the Hebrew text doesn't use, and the Jews would never write the name of God. 
they wouldn't use any vowels. They just used what we would consider consonants, Y-H-V-H. And that's known as a tetragrammaton. A tetra, tetra, four, four letter. It's a four letter word for God. And the Jews, they, they respected God so much that they believed that they said the name of God that it, if it passed human lips, then it would degrade or it would put God down. So they didn't mention the name of God. They would, they would read the scriptures and they would get to a place where it said Yahweh and they would get to that place and they would go, ah, bless his name forever. And then they would keep reading and bless his name. They wouldn't use his name. They wouldn't repeat his name. And so we have this Yahweh is what we use because uh, they, they didn't want to utter his name. They respected God's name so greatly. But there, there are two pronunciations that we use in our Bibles. One is Yahweh. The other one is Jehovah. We have both of those, Jehovah and Yahweh. Yahweh is the name that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew. They knew that name. Yahweh is the way they were introduced to God. Moses heard a different name of God when he was at the burning bush, remember? He heard a voice. You're on hollow ground. Take off your shoes. I want you to go and speak. I don't want to go. I want you to go and I want you to lead. I don't want to do that. Moses, I remember Moses argued with God. He said, I want you. And so Moses says this at the end of the conversation. He goes, well, who should I say sent me? Remember the name of God there? Remember what it was? I am has sent. It's really interesting. It's in Exodus 3. We covered it many, many months ago. Here it is on the screen behind me. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he says, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, my name, I am, has sent you. Now, in the Hebrew, that word I am means existing one. It means the becoming one. He's the great I am. He's the great becoming one. If you need something, God is. He is who he is. He can do anything. He can do all things. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. And so he's the great God, the self-existing God. So Yahweh is not only his, it's, it's not really even his name. It's hard to describe. It, it's not his name. God is not his name. It's a title. We use that all the time. We say God did this, and I ask God, and but that's not his name. Yahweh, Yehovah. I am, whatever you need. And there's a lot of Jehovah's and then Jireh, Tzitkanu, all the different, God righteous, God shalom, God by peace, all these different names of God in the Bible. You can't pin God down. You cannot put him in a box. He is not like you and I. And I love that about God, that he's not like me, that he's not like you, that he's transcendent, he lives out time, outside of time and space. Like he's so great and so powerful. That's the God we know. That's the God we serve. That's the God that can answer your prayer. Oh, I have this really great need. I need $150 for my, my electric bill. Think about God and your need. Think about that. Can God meet your need? Of course he can. Can you wait for God's answer? That's the question. God is all-powerful. He's the self-existing one. He is the living and true God. Now, the name of Jesus is really interesting because it's Yeshua. So you have Yahweh and you have Joshua or Yeshua. Yeshua means I am your salvation. Jesus used it over and over in the New Testament. Let me give you two examples real quick. John 8, 24. If you do not believe that Jesus says, I am he... You will die in your sins. In John 8, 58, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, Jesus says, I am the self-existing one. Christian orthodoxy teaches that we believe in one God, but that one God manifests himself in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Bible makes that very clear. Jesus claims to be God 
Thomas, have I been so long with you that you don't even know who I am? Show us the Father and we'll, we'll, I'll be happy, doubting Thomas says. Have I been that long with you? But Jesus isn't the Father, but he represents the Father. If you can figure out that tonight, you come up and explain it to me. <laughs> God is not like you and he's not like me. But one of my favorite accounts is when Jesus is on Gethsemane. And the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. It's dark. It's pitch dark. No, there's no uh, lights on the side. I've been on, on Gethsemane, by the way, with a, in the olive grove. I've been there. There's, no, there's lights now. There's, there's a freeway right below down there in, in, in the valley. But in Jesus' time, there weren't any lights. They came with torches. They were trying to find Jesus. They couldn't see him, and they're looking for Jesus. And Judas kissed his cheek, and they were not sure. Who is he? Who is he? And they're looking for, for Jesus. That's the one that they came to arrest. And Jesus is the one in John chapter 18 who says, who are you guys looking for? It's, it's dark, right? And Jesus actually comes out of the dark. He says, who are you guys looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. And what happened? What happened to the soldiers? Remember? They fell backwards. The power of God. Jesus, again, the foundation of the old helps you and I to understand the new. But notice here now, Yahweh, the Lord. I am Yahweh. I'm the Yahweh. He proclaims his name to Moses. But he also wonderfully describes his nature. And I want to spend some time here. I'll go as quickly as I can. But the nature of God, notice, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Now, this description would have been really important at this particular time with Moses. Because the children of Israel, they know that they've sinned. They've been judged by God. God says, I'm not going to lead you into the promised land. And they're like, oh, Lord, please, can't, we, can't you forgive us? You know, they know what they've done. They're rebellious. Their sin you know, has found them out with dancing around the golden calf. And God is basically saying here, now that you know you're deserving of judgment, let me tell you something about who I am. Let me explain my character, my nature, and my ways. And what does he say? I'm merciful and gracious. God doesn't come, remember he, he's going to reveal the goodness in, in chapter 33. The goodness of God, I'll reveal my goodness before you, Moses. Not justice, but goodness. Don't you love that about God? God does not treat us, Psalm 103, after our own sin. But he's gracious and he's merciful. I love that about God. I love the description that we see. I've done everything I can in, in my sin to repel God, but God does everything, everything he can do to draw me to himself. I love that. I am, there in verse 6, merciful and gracious. In other words, salvation comes from me. Forgiveness comes from me. Go back and tell your people that, Moses. I love that. This whole passage is just a reminder of the grace of God. God is gracious. He's loving. He's not, this is really important, God is not compelled to love anybody, but God is love. It's, it's hard to get that into your mind. God doesn't treat you nicely because you received him or accepted him. He doesn't respond to you. But God is love. He's gracious. That's, that's his nature. That's his character. He just is love. And his choice to love you and I comes from his nature, from his character, from who he is. In other words, God isn't gracious and merciful in response to the way Israel acted. But God's grace comes from him because, as God says, I am compassionate and gracious and therefore, because I am, I choose to be compassionate and gracious to you. The grace of God, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful study. But he says, merciful and gracious. Remember, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. God gives you and I mercy. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that he just gives you mercy? Jesus showed mercy to the 
woman caught in the very act of adultery. Here's a great, one of the greatest descriptions of God in the New Testament is when Jesus, this woman, she was brought, she was caught in the very act of adultery. And I doubt very much that the Pharisees that drug her and threw her before Jesus in that crowd gave her time to put a robe on. I think she is completely na- naked. And they bring her and throw her in front of Jesus. And the Bible says very specifically that Jesus bowed down. In other words, he didn't look at her in her shame. He didn't shame her anymore. And he was going to use this example to teach them all. Moses in the law says that she must be put to death by stoning. You, you, we need to kill her right now. What do you say, Jesus? They thought they caught him. They thought they had brought him to a place to, because if, if he says stone, then he's, lose, he, he, he's not gracious anymore, and the people will turn away from him. They, they've got Jesus cornered. So Jesus began to write in the sand, and he said, remember what he said? Let him who is without sin do what? You cast the first one. Whoever doesn't have sin, you cast the first stone. And guess what? The Bible says that everyone from oldest to youngest dropped their stones and walked away. And he said, woman, where's your accuser? And she goes, I don't have any accusers. That's when Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he says, go and sin no more. That is grace. That is mercy. That's the kind of God that loves you. That's the kind of God that you serve. Not a God that sits on a throne somewhere, aloof, or someone that has a lightning bolt, just waiting, just waiting for you to do that thing. And as soon as you do it, he's going to throw that lightning bolt at you. Some Christians have that view of God. The God I know is, he's just, yeah, but he's merciful, he's gracious. The beautiful truth is we're all saved by the same thing, and it's the grace and the love of God. This attribute that God says here, he says, I am the Lord, I am the Lord your God, I am gracious and merciful. That's who I am. That's what he's revealing. It's Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's a beautiful truth. F.P. Meyer said, there's no greater word in the language than the word that stands for the undeserved, the free gift of the love of God. I love that. So long-suffering, here's here's another uh, attribute of God. The idea behind the word long-suffering means that God is slow to anger. In other words, God doesn't have a short fuse like your best friend. Any of you have a friend like that? Maybe you're like that yourself, short-fused. God's not short-fused. God is long-suffering. I love that in Psalm 103. God understands who we are. He knows we're frail. He knows we're but dust. He understands that that our days are numbered, that that we're very, very short-lived. And so he's he's very long-suffering. He knows us. I, was, I love to think about how long-suffering God has been with me. Have you ever thought about that? That God has been long-suffering in some area of your life where you have been disobedient, obstinate, stiff-necked, just like these children of Israel. But God is long-suffering. Aren't you glad? I'm thankful for that. And then it says, abounding in goodness and truth. Again, God's promise to Moses back in chapter 33, verse 19 was, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you, and I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord to you. That that was his promise, and now it's being revealed here in chapter 34. And God didn't reveal his justice. He didn't reveal his power. He didn't come in judgment. But what does God reveal? His mercy, his grace. And he says, I love that there, that he's abounding who's abounding in goodness and in truth. It's Gail Irwin who writes, not merely adequate, but abounding in goodness. God has barns and he has silos full of grace and faithfulness and he's just stacking it up, waiting to to dump it on those that respond to his love. Just waiting. I I love that thought. That's, That's our God. He's abounding. He doesn't have a little love for you. He's got, he, he just wants to flood your life. He wants to just bury you in his abounding love, his mercy, his grace. 
I love that. Then verse 7, there it says, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Uh, You know, that covers all your sins. That covers everything going on in your life. Iniquity there. That's breaking God's law, whether you do it intentionally or unintentionally. And then there's transgression. That's rebellion. That's a trespass. That's exactly what the children of Israel just did. And then sin, in the Hebrew, it's katah. It's a very interesting word. It's, it has to do with the condition of the heart, the condition of, of your sin and your habitual falling into that over and over your sin. That's what he's talking about here. Covers all of those things. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It just reminds me of 1 John. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's the God that we know. This is the God that's revealing himself here to Moses on the mountain. He's a just God. But notice at the end of verse 7, by no means clearing the guilty. This is all about God being just. In other words, you'll pay for your sin, or someone will, I guess I should say. Sin will not go unpunished. And he says here in verse 7, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That means that God, he does not forgive sin by ignoring it as it's passed down through your family. He doesn't forgive it by overlooking it. God is righteous. He doesn't minimize sin the sin in your life. There has to be punishment. But God, he's provided this gracious punishment for your sin through his suffering servant, revealed in Isaiah 53, if you've ever read that passage. It's the Messiah who was bruised for our transgression. His body was broken. A, A beautiful picture of how God deals with sin. Sin will never go unpunished, Aren't you grateful that it was Jesus Christ who took your sin to the cross? That's just, and God is just. There will be payment for sin. And we need to understand as his child that Jesus is the one that's taken our sin in his body. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5. Notice the scripture behind me on the screen. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So here you have the perfect balance. You have have mercy and God's grace. He's abounding in that. But you have justice. No sin will go unpunished. That would minimize sin, and God does not minimize sin. He deals with it. How did he deal with it? He placed it on his son, and Jesus took it to the cross. It's a beautiful truth. And then the third and fourth generation there at the end of verse 7. Basically, your, your sin will continue in your child's life. It needs to be stopped. How do you stop it? Well, you, you educate yourself in God's word. You turn from your sin. You confess your sin. That's how you stop it. Lord, help us to do the right thing so our sin isn't transferred to the next generation. Now, notice Moses responds here to God's revelation. My next point, Moses made haste, and he bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshiped. I love that. Then he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we're stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. The first thing Moses does is worship. And then the first thing Moses does is intercede. He prays. So, so he prays to the Lord, and then he, or he worships the Lord, and then he intercedes, or he begins to pray and intercede for the people. He's, I, I believe he understands the grace of God. He's thanking the Lord for his grace. He's worshiping God for his, his long-suffering 
and his, his grace and mercy that has, has been shown to him, Moses, and will be shown to the people. And so Moses worships and Moses prays. Now, let me just real quickly just mention his prayer. It's really important. There are four things here in Moses' prayer. He prays for, number one, he asks forgiveness for the people. Notice, even though we are a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin. So Moses is praying for forgiveness. He's interceding for the people. But it's interesting the way he does it. Because back in verse 6, it's interesting. God had told Moses, notice what it says, that God is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. And so Moses, knowing that, now says, okay, so I'm going to pray that back. I'm going to say the same thing that God said. It's a wonderful way to pray, by the way, when you read Scripture and it's truth. You just pray it back. And that's what he's doing here. He says, uh, you know, uh, we're stiff-necked people, but I'm going to rely upon your mercy and your grace. Uh, I'm going to ask for a pardon here. And then number two in his prayer, Mo Moses identifies with the people. He says, I pray, go among us, even though we're stiff-necked. So Moses doesn't say, uh, Lord, forgive them for their sin or forgive us of our sin. Moses identifies with them and he says, you know, I, I, I'm, go among us, Lord. Be with us. He, he's identifying himself, even though he wasn't there. Remember, Moses wasn't there when all the dancing and nudeness was going on. He came down, broke the tablet, but he's identifying himself with his people there. He's the mediator. He's the type of Christ, just like Jesus, who came to take away our sins. First Peter 2, real quickly, who himself, here's the scripture, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. And that's what Moses is doing. He's not taking stripes, but he's praying and it's identifying with this sinful people. The third request that's very bold here is he says, go with us. I pray that you would go with us. And remember, God said, I'm not going to go with you because you sinned. In fact, if I go with you, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to consume you. That's what he says in chapter 33. But here, Moses says, we want you to go with us. We want you to lead. You know, you've got to do this, God. That's what Moses is asking him to do. So Moses asks God, I pray that you go among us even though we are stiff-necked people. And then the fourth request from Moses here in this prayer, and this is the best one if you look at the end of verse 9, it's take us as your inheritance. Take us as your inheritance. He prays that God would take his people as his own. You, we've been isolated because of our sin. He goes, bring us back. Take us as yours. We want to be your people. We want to be your special inheritance. I read an illustration of that today. This would be like an unfaithful husband. She, he's been found out by his wife. Then he goes back to her and asks her to take him back. And not only that, but to choose him as the thing that's most precious in her whole life after he's committed adultery. That would be hard to do, wouldn't it? That's what Moses is asking here. Seems outrageous. It seems over the top. But what does God do? Because he's a God of love and forgiveness and long-suffering. He forgives them. Not only does he forgive them, but he does what, what he's called Moses up on the top of the mountain to do. He renews his covenant, verse 10, notice, and he said, behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in the earth nor in, the, in any nation and all the people among whom you shall see the work of the Lord for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe, verse 11, what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, Canaanite, Hittite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite. Again, this was God's covenant with the people. He's going to drive out the people and he's going to give them a land he promised them. It was promised to Abraham and now it's being fulfilled in the children of Israel, the offspring of Abraham. So this is God's covenant. He doesn't negotiate. He doesn't say, well, if you do this, I'll do that. He just said, here's what it is. I'm going to drive the people out. I'm going to place you in that place. And he's 
he dedicated the, the, or dictated, pardon me, the terms of this contract with the people. If they obeyed, then, then they would be his, he would be their God, and by choice, they would be his people. That was the point. Verse 12, take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. So I've made this covenant. I want you to follow it, fulfill it. Do not make a covenant with the people around lest it be a snare in your midst. Verse 13, but you shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images. Again, the the reason God's being so specific is because, because the Canaanites, the Canaanites, we've already looked at them back in chapter 23, but the Canaanites are very wicked people. They're the people that they're so evil and they're, they're corrupt to the core. And God has given them opportunities. He's been long-suffering, but they've rejected him. And so God is going to judge the Canaanites. And God says, listen, when you go in this land with the Canaanites, burn down their altars, take all their... It'll corrupt you. You've got to destroy every last item, every last idol. You have to take care of all those things. God did not want his people to join in any way the Canaanites and their corrupt worship. Verse 14, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their God and make sacrifice to their God, and one of them invites you to eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughter for your sons, and your daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play with a harlot with their gods. So God's saying, I'm the only God. I want you to to get rid of all the idols, get rid of all the the remnants of these other gods in this land when you go into this land. And then he repeats a warning that Moses would remind the children of Israel later. Notice in verse 17, you shall make no molded gods for yourself. Why does he say that? They just did it. So God holds them to that. So in verse 18 through 27, this, is a little, this section goes a little quicker, and I'll read it quickly, but this is where the Ten Commandments and the various laws kind of get melded together. So from this emerges the same Ten Commandments that were written back in Exodus 20. Same Ten Commandments, but they're not all described perfectly here. But notice what he says, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, verse 18, you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you in the appointed time of the month, Abib. For in the month of Abib, you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. Every first or every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. But the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of your son shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days shall you, uh, you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. doesn't matter how busy the season is. You take that day of rest. And you shall, verse 22, observe the feast of weeks and the first fruits of wheat harvest and the feast of ingatherings at the year's end. Three times a year, all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. So the, the firstborn are to be dedicated to the Lord, The Sabbath day is to be honored by God's people. The three required feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, which really the Passover, right, represents the deliverance. The death angel passed over and they were delivered from Egypt. The spring harvest, but the Passover and the spring harvest happened in the spring of the year. The spring harvest, the unleavened bread, Again, that, that represented new life, new food, new life to the people. And then the tabernacles or the, the Feast of Booths, that represented, you know, finally getting into the, the wandering through the, the promised land and finally getting to the, to the promised land. So these feasts were required. Every male of a certain age had to go to these three feasts. Verse 24, for I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the peace of the Passover be left until 
morning. Um, we studied that in Leviticus and the reasons why. You could go back and check out some of those studies. They're really good in Leviticus to explain all that. Verse 26, the first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That's a real, what, where did that come from? This, this was one of the things the Canaanites did. They, they were just nasty people. And God says, I do not want you to bring any of their habits or their things into this, this nation, this culture. So that was one of those strange Canaanite things. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 27, write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So there's the writing of the Ten Commandments, just reference to them there. Now, We come now to Moses' shining face here at the end of the chapter. Notice, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. That's Moses. He neither ate bread or drank water. Wow. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face, Shekinah glory, shone while he talked with the people. So he's down there and say, hey, how's it going? Hey, I got the, the Ten Commandments, you know, and the people are like, whoa, whoa, and they're backing off, and it's like, what's going on? And Moses doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't know he's glowing. His face is glowing. It's scaring everyone. So when Aaron and the people, verse 30, uh, children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Again, God had transformed him. He had been in the presence of God. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron, verse 31, and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him. They ran off, right? So they returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. (laughs) He put a hood on. He covered, because it freaked him out, so he put a bag on it. But whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the bag, the veil, until he came out. And then he would put, uh, come out and speak to the children of Israel whether he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went to speak with them. Remember, back in chapter 33, God left the presence of the people, and Moses took his tent outside the camp. Remember all the people in chapter 3, they, they, would, they were watching from their tents as Moses would go into the tent of meeting that was outside the camp because God didn't want to be with the sinful people. And so this is still happening. God, Moses going into the tent, the glow, comes out with a glowing face, puts a bag on it, you know, and talks to the people. Then he goes back, takes the bag off, and goes back into God's presence. So I don't know how long his face glowed, but it was really shining. But here's, here's the, the, the key application, the wonderful truth from Moses and his shining face here, face here. When you read the Bible, when you pray, when you're exposed to God, you should shine. You should shine just like Jesus Christ. The Word of God should be, have such an impact Your prayer time before the Lord, you should feel so close to God that you should shine or glow, not like Moses and, you know, put a bag on your face, but you should reflect the glory of God in all that you do. Isn't that a beautiful truth? Oh, that we would spend time with the Lord, that we would reflect his glory when, when we're in relationships, in the workplace, on the freeway. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3. Notice behind me on the screen. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. God is transforming us to reflect his glory and his attributes and his mercy and his kindness. That's what God is doing 
in your life. That's what he's doing in my life. And the more time you spend in the word and spend in prayer, the more you'll be able to reflect the glory of God. I love that truth there. The radiance. This kind of radiance, this glowing, should be common among God's people. We should be radiating the glory of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God. Not in a glowing face like Moses, but in our attributes, in our ministry, in our words, in our deeds. Someone said that we should put a little sign on our bathroom mirror that says, whose reflection do you see today, the world's or God's? I like that. Moses, his transformation happened because he spent those 40 days with the Lord. We need to spend time with the Lord so that we can reflect the glory of God. The writer of the Hebrews said, here's my last scripture, Hebrews 4, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. Speaking of prayer, just going before the Lord and then reflecting his glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word tonight. I thank you for its truth. And for these, your people, who are here to, to learn and to grow. And I pray, Father, that, that you would give us all a desire to, to read your word, to pray, to spend time with you. Not just minutes, not just mealtime prayer, but, but to get on our knees before you and to read your word to spend time in prayer with, with others, with our fam family members and, and those in our fellowship in prayer times and to seek you and to ask from you. And Lord, may we glow. May we reflect your glory in what we do and what we say. May we honor you, Lord, and reflect your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your forgiveness and long-suffering. May those be the attributes that we reflect as others see you in us as your sons and daughters. Lord, bless these, your people. Cause them, Lord, to, to reflect your glory and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's all 